Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The next chapter with Prim Saripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. It's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is former NBA player and Ohio State Buckeye, Greg Oden. In part one of this interview last week, Greg talked about his childhood and all the different forces that nudged him towards sport. In part two this week, we're going to hear more about Greg's roller coaster journey after draft night in 2007 and what it was like to navigate all those expectations as the number one overall pick. I think the thing that really stands out to me in listening to Greg is how so many athletes are physically prepared to transition to the professional or elite level, but are clearly not developmentally or emotionally prepared to make that big jump. Money, fame, status, expectations, negative influences, all those things are not easy to navigate. And for Greg, tons of injuries. In all, seven surgeries over the course of his career. Seven. I think a lot of people don't know he had that many operations because he doesn't talk about it publicly. Greg's name has almost become synonymous with the label bust. And that's one narrative I'm, I don't know, to be honest, sick and tired of hearing. Maybe it's because I was an athlete and that's my own problem to work through, but I find myself wanting to be protective and wanting to defend Greg or any other athlete labeled a bust because as you'll hear in the next hour or so, there's a lot of factors and a lot of people that contribute to an athlete's downward spiral of becoming a bust. How draft night was handled, how his injuries were handled, how his rehab was handled, how he was in need of guidance and mentorship, not just on the basketball court, but more importantly, off the court. Now, this is not to absolve Greg of anything that happened. He needs to and does accept responsibility for a lot of the things that went wrong. It's merely contextualizing his journey and recognizing what else happened along the way, rather than just pointing the finger at him and and calling him a bust. I really don't like that label because, in my opinion, it's an oversimplification of the athlete and what happened. So my hope is that you listen to the details of Greg's story and walk away with a much better understanding of how difficult it is and has been to walk in his shoes. So without further ado, 
Here's part two with Greg Oden. Because typically when, you know, I've, we talked about this uh, before, but I've, I've had four surgeries, but typically there's the whole physical therapy phase. You go to physical therapy for several months and then surgery is the last resort. And then you talk about the surgery, what kind it is, and they roll out the, the timeline and, and all that jazz. So did was it originally, because I know with one of your surgeries, it was supposed to be arth- arthroscopic, which is where they insert three holes and they kind of do a very cleanup of it. Mm-hmm. But the microfracture surgery is very serious and complicated. Mm-hmm. So was it originally supposed to be arthros- arthroscopic? Yes. So it was oh. really supposed to be a go in, kind of see what's going on, clean it up. Got it. And then it was like, well, this is what it is. We're already in here. So Let's they switched it up it. without even like <clears throat> telling I mean, you? or I knew that there was a possibility of you know doing something while they were in there that's not the case but the year-long surgery like that's not you know like i wasn't prepped for that i was prepped and my thought was it's going to be something minor you know we could possibly do something to fix it up if we see anything else but you gotta think like i'm not going in thinking that anything else is a year-long you're out for the year. That's not, yeah. I'm just thinking it could like at most it would be three, four months, you know, that would be worst case scenario. But my worst case scenario was a full year. Wow. And something that obviously I dealt with throughout my whole entire career after that. Well, yeah. Arthroscopic. So I had uh, arthroscopy on uh, right shoulder, both knees. It's even faster now, but even back then 15 years ago, I mean, they want you moving like two days later. And um, yeah. you're you're out in like a month, and yeah. you're starting to train or whatever. So you wake up. That's 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 a lot. I mean, you so. Mm-hmm. And I'm still 19 at this time. You're 19, and you're a rookie, mm-hmm. and of course you feel the expectation of the city mm-hmm. on your shoulders. And you thought it was just going to be a couple weeks, couple months, whatever. You wake up, and they're like, "You're you're out for the rest of the year." Yeah. That must have been. That must have been a lot. I don't even. Yeah. It, it was. And then you got to think like, you know, so now I'm just trying to figure out how am I going to connect with my teammates? Mm-hmm. Um, how am I, what am I going to do for the city? You know, I'm, they just had this big old parade for me. Like, <laughs> how, how am I going to contribute? What am I going to even be doing? Um, so, you know, I. I didn't have the mindset I had then, you know. I'm not sitting there watching every practice and then doing my rehab outside of practice. No, I'm doing my rehab during practice. You know, I want to be there. I want to be doing stuff at the same time the team's doing stuff. So I'm not thinking, no, you need to be sitting here watching all these little things. You need to be in the film sessions and and just getting little things, you know, adding to your game, adding to your mental um, about the game. No, I, I didn't have people to tell me that, you know. I'm 19 years old. I just want to have fun. I just want to be around my teammates, enjoy, you know, being this professional athlete, you know. And then, you know, there was times where, you know, I was seeing the therapist and trying to figure out, you know, okay, am I even thinking correctly? But Portland's a very small city. So Mm. for me, 
a lot of things with I would feel like the GM would bring me in and, and he's having a conversation about me. Greg, did you do this? Did you do this last night? And I'm like, well, how do you know that? Like, so now I feel like I'm being watched. Wow. So now I'm trying to hide even more. So now, you know, I mean, I'm doing what he, I'm doing. Were they asking personal questions and were they asking about you seeking help? Uh, no, you know, they have team therapists. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but Portland being so small, you don't realize that, you know, the the beat writer mm. can literally go, he's having dinner, I'm going to have dinner, I'm having fun with friends, you know, a writer in the city might have went out that same night and seen me somewhere, you know, they're relaying this back to the GM. Add and on it, top of it, you're seven feet tall and yeah, it goes so back I to can't that whole thing. Anywhere I go. Right. So now, you know, so now I'm really trying to hide. So now I'm not talking to nobody. I'm not opening up about anything because I just feel like I'm being watched everything I do. So now I, I kind of don't trust, you know, trust the therapist as much as I should have to get the mm. proper help that I need. I'm not talking to, you know, the people I need to talk to. I'm not talking to coaches. I'm not talking to the trainer, you know, and telling them the truth to actually help me with everything I'm going through. Now I'm just... 19 feeling like i'm all alone it's me and my boy who's living out there with me we're just trying to maneuver the city quietly without nobody seeing me you know doing stuff that you know most people wouldn't do and um it wasn't the right path well it was a hard path yes yeah i mean i think that a lot of things that you're talking about i think the league and teams are starting to it's taking it's taken some history and some time and events and your story is one of many where they've started to make changes mental mm-hmm. health i mean that's the mm-hmm. reason why i created this show is to talk about mental health and now i just visited with dr william parham who's the new mental health director for the mbpa oh, and they've good. you know dr parham I've heard he's a good yeah he's a great guy uh, if you ever need anything he has even for retired players he has offered his assistance so if you i need. know he works with Keon Dooley. Yes. 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 So, yes, yep. I met him at uh, Rookie Transition. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, this summer you said? Yeah, or? this summer. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, are... I was one of the counselors at Rookie Transition. Ah, yeah. So, I sat in on all the little different ones. Yeah, and they, so him and Keon, the mental health and wellness program, mm-hmm. which is associated with the MBPA, just started last year and they've, you know, Dr. Parham's talked about this program. It's got four phases. He has now established a whole medical system. There's therapists and psychologists in every single MBA city. And yes. right. And there's also a, a level of privacy and anonymity. Mm-hmm. So players don't have to deal with the things that you dealt with, even mm-hmm. though it still continues to be an issue because a lot of athletes don't want to seek help because they feel that the teams will hold it against them and coaches will hold all of that against them. And there are a lot of coaches that still do. And they're of that old mindset, but you know, 10 years ago, whatever it was when you were, yeah. I mean, now that's what 12, 14, 13. Yeah. I mean, that was completely different back then. So here you are, you're, you thought you were going to have just a minor surgery. You ended end up being out for the rest of the year. And even at 19, you're, doing the things to get help, but you're in an environment where everyone's watching on, everyone's watching you. You don't know who to trust. People are kind of like, you know, 
tattletailing on you a little bit, maybe because they don't mean to be, but it's, you just kind of stand out and it's like, oh, there's Greg. Yeah. And then, you know, at 19, I'm thinking, I'm not thinking correctly. I'm thinking like a 19 year old. I think anything negative towards me that somebody was out to get me yeah, or somebody, you know, felt a certain type of way to ruin whatever I thought I had going on in my head. You know, Mm -hmm. at 19, you just think all types of stuff. You know, I'm not thinking, well, maybe, you know, these people are just trying to make sure I'm good and making sure I'm not going the wrong places, making sure I'm not Mm -hmm. doing this that's going to hurt me in the long run. Um, But, you know, I I wasn't reaching out to people to, to find that, you know. And at the same time, you know, like I had vets on that team, but I wasn't reaching out, you know. And then the guys I was closest with, Brandon Roy and LaMarcus, they just got drafted the year before me, you know, so we're all pretty young at that time. I mean, and Brandon was, he eventually went through his own health issues and, and all of that. So everyone's just kind of figuring out their own system. And at that age at 19, you don't know, I was still in college. Like I did not, I didn't know what I was doing. And when, and the psychological aspect of being injured it's not as simple as going to rehab and, and it's like, okay, let's f- fix the body and make you make the return. Mm-hmm. It is, it's lonely. It's isolating. Yes. Uh, because you're right. You talked about practice, mm-hmm. but you can't be with the team because you've got rehab and rehab, especially with that type of surgery, you're probably in there anywhere from two to six hours a day. Yeah. About two. Cause you're, you need to lift as well. Right. You got to do all the stuff for your knees. Um, and then you can't forget about the rest of your body because your whole body works together. Um, yeah, it's, it's some time, time consuming. You got to add the diet you need to be on so you don't gain extra weight while you know one of your limbs is a little bit weaker. Um, yeah. And I think getting to know what matters to you and how much you enjoyed Ohio State and having that community, and you talk about like your face lights up when you talk about the dorms and. Mm-hmm. Being, being able to have bunk mates and three room, four roommates, whatever. I felt like it was just, it was acceptable to be, to learn and to be coming into your own um, as a person um, when you're in college. Then, um, well, now, you know, these guys are looked at as pros mm-hmm. even in college. But, you know, when you start making that money and your name is called, you know, you're, you're supposed to be a pro then. You know, and I keep on saying you're only 19 years old. And a lot of us who are in that position are coming from families that's never been in that position no more. So you don't really know how to handle it. You don't have a playbook on, on how to handle yourself in these type of situations and around these professional people. Um, you're just going by, you know, doing whatever you think's right. Mm-hmm. And knowing how much family and community is important to you. And then add all the injuries that you went through over the course of your career and already how isolating and tough it is to just deal with injuries, period, Mm -hmm. as an athlete. Um, That must have exacerbated your situation even more because, you know, you just you want to be a part of the team, Mm -hmm. but your body's not allowing you to do that and. It must have been um, challenging. The five years I was with Portland, it was a lot of ups and downs from um, injury standpoint. But then when I look back at it, uh, there was a way that 
I can be connected to the team. Mm-hmm. I was a party guy. I knew where the clubs the party were. Guy. I knew which clubs to go to in Portland mm-hmm. on which night. I would have house parties, you know, ones that the guys can come to. Um, I was always the fun guy, you know, getting everybody drinks, everybody to loosen up. You know, that was that was kind of my connection with those guys when I wasn't playing. Um, and then when I was playing, you know, I had already kind of built that little bit of reputation that, you know, I was I was going to go out. I was going to have fun. You know, I was going to connect with some teammates this way. You know, if you wanted to find a club on a Wednesday, I don't know which one to go to, the low-key spot to go to. Um, yeah, I, I kind of took that upon myself. Yeah. You were the – but those those role players <clears throat> are important. Mm-hmm. You're uh, – who was it? Not Coach K. Somebody – some uh, another basketball coach, I think at the college level, in their book they were talking about the glue guys. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you're – with your talent, you were more than just a glue guy, but because you couldn't contribute to the team, do you think you would have been the party guy or the guy, the fun guy, if you hadn't been injured? Uh, if I had been injured and had a little bit more direction, um, I'm not sure I would have dedicated as much energy into that mm. part of my life. Because um, when I look back at it now, like I should have been the guy who was going to the gym two times a day, you know, just getting better, doing what I can to to uh, not hurt myself, you know, not drinking as much. You know, alcohol is, is not good on your body, you know, being the better diet guy, being the more um, just stern, going by the book, doing what I can to better myself. Um, I think I put a lot of energy into stuff when I actually enjoy it and know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, just at that time, I didn't have that direction or I physically couldn't be out there to do some of these things. So that energy went elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was your it was your way of connecting. It's what mm-hmm. you did the best that you knew at that time. Yeah. And maybe because you just didn't get a little bit more coaching or mentorship it mm-hmm. it led you down a, a different path and, and it might have been fine uh but was that when the alcohol entered into your life or so you started seeking help a, during your rookie season but when did the drinking come into the picture uh it was started more my rookie season so it was because, pretty early on yeah i mean i had money and now I had a lot of access to it, um, and I wasn't playing. So, you know, that, that partying just started coming from, look, you got all this free time. It's not like you got to go to practice tomorrow. All you got to do is go and get your knees stretched out and do a couple of leg exercises and get a lift in, get in the steam room. Like, I'm not performing. I'm not around the team as much as I would be if I was playing. So, in my head, it was okay to go out, you know, and drink all night and then just show up and do what I need to do and go home. Mm-hmm. So that was another way of kind of keeping to myself as well. Um, that I, I started doing a lot of this stuff and then trying to hide it. Um, mm-hmm. So now I, I even I stayed away from the teammates and being around the team more. You know, Now they're on the road, so... I'm doing rehab with just me in the gym, you know. So you're not always traveling with the team. You're behind and you're by yourself and you're. So then who, 
And, but in, in, at that age though, because during my time in college, there were other athletes there, um, that had a lot of issues with alcohol, but at that age, you can mask it because it's cool to party. And at that time I saw a couple of several of my friends and I thought, well, they look like they might have issues, but then they're the house that everybody wants to go and party at. Mm -hmm. So they're the cool kids on campus. There's, they're the social butterflies. Like if if you're looking for a party Sunday through Saturday, Mm -hmm. their house is the one to go to. So at that age, like you can play it off so well and, and mask it. I mean, that was, it was the idea thing to do, you know, especially, you know, being professional. I had the VIP section roped off, you know, (laughs) like it was a bunch of people around there, lots of girls, lots of alcohol, Mm -hmm. lots of fun. And even at times you'd be like, Hey, Make sure, you know, they're not bringing the sparklers over here. We don't want people taking pictures over there, mm. you know. So now it's private, you know. That's very appealing to, you know, a lot of athletes, a lot of celebrities. You know, you, you want to do that stuff and not be seen. So, right. you know, it was hiding in plain sight kind of, you know. You expected me yeah. to be the party guy. You expected me to be at the nice restaurant or, you know, in the club somewhere in the corner. You wouldn't even know. Um, that I was there, but you knew if you asked me, I'd tell you exactly where to go, where to be at. You were the guy to go to. I don't know if I was the guy, but I was a guy. <laughs> uh, and at what point do you remember where alcohol ends up turning into something of a more serious issue? So it goes from fun mm-hmm. to now, like, to now dependency. Um. Well, there's two situations. Um, the first one was kind of, I, I just remember, and this is not, um, this in Portland, um, the first one, when I realized that I had to go out and get drunk, and I would take two Vicodin, two Percocet, two uh, PM tablets, Advil or Tylenol, um, with two Benadryl. And I had to chase that down with alcohol just to sleep about four hours a night. And that happened for a good six months. And I was bulimic at the time. Mm. Um, So those issues. And I remember you and I both talking about our own uh, issues at the panel. So that mm -hmm. started during your rookie season, very early. Uh, Not my rookie season. Oh, okay. But when you were in Portland. My third, fourth season, because it was when the surgeries, you know, um, to start piling up back to back to back. So it was around um, third or fourth season. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And, um, you know, I had so many pills just left over from the surgeries. You don't even think about it. And then when I looked at it, it was like, I mean, it was time outside of that initial surgery where I was still taking, you know, these pills every four hours. Yeah. You know, and even if I wasn't in pain, I was just so used to it. I was just so dependent on it. Um, that That's when I kind of looked at it like, okay, this is a problem. Um and then uh, after Miami season, um, that was in 2015, 13, 14, 13, 14. Yep. yeah. Um, and I got arrested for a domestic violence situation where I really looked at it and was like, I'm, I'm a person that I don't even recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, 
where I ended up going to rehab and uh, was on probation for three years. Um, I got clean for six months. Um, but that situation, um, I really, like, that. I'm not that type of guy. I feel like I would never, um, I feel like I didn't have it in me to put my hands on a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened. And when I look back at it, like, one of these days, I got to have this conversation with my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really... I couldn't look at myself for a while because that's just not, I I don't see that as me. That Mm -hmm. definitely wasn't me and I lost myself. Um, And that was a big, big moment when I had to realize what all of the alcohol and the drugs and just my way of thinking and the way of handling myself, uh, the path that I was leading towards. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think that moment you're talking about the incident with your ex-girlfriend. Uh, you know, not to keep delving into the past, but I think it's important to understand. I think a lot of people will just look at a look at one event or one incident and just want to label people and say like he did this. But for me, I think it's important to delve into the past because it explains a lot of the things that lead up to that moment that might push somebody over the edge and explain the struggles or pain or trauma or whatever it is. And it's the only time I'm going to bring up my notes so I can, (laughs) because your injury history is actually more extensive than mine. But so you had that wrist surgery right before you go to college. Mm -hmm. Next year you get drafted. Mm -hmm. And now I know that you thought it was going to be a simple surgery, Mm -hmm. but you end up, you wake up, they tell you, the doctors tell you after your right knee surgery, you're going to be out for the rest of the season. Mm -hmm. All right, so then that that goes down. So you're out. You finally you come back, finally make your debut about a year and a half after you get drafted. Mm-hmm. That's January 2009. In your NBA debut, you only played 13 minutes mm-hmm. against the Lakers, and then you leave with a foot injury. I rolled my ankle, yep, and was out for like two weeks. So you were out for two weeks, but then, okay, so you're out for two weeks, you come back, and then the next month, or maybe it was like a couple weeks later, you injure your knee in that game, right? Yeah, I think that season I ended up playing like 20 games. And then, uh, oh, wait, no. Yeah, I chipped my, uh, you chip your, I chipped my kneecap before you chip All-Star knee? break. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, that's my my real first season. Yeah. Well, I, I deal with a that lot was your of, real season, but then yeah, you I got. I deal with a lot of knick-knack injuries that season. Yeah, so you, you chip your kneecap. And then you're out for three weeks. Okay, so then you're out. You make your debut, but you're out again for another season. Then it's your third season in 2009 and 10. You have a really, really good season. Yeah, that's Great why start. I played 20 games, and then and then in December, it's I not broke even my kneecap. You broke your kneecap, and it's like that's that's another traumatizing event. You're carried off onto the stretcher. You fracture your left patella, and again, you're out for the rest I mean, of the year. So I can't even say fracture because fracture is like literally my kneecap broke in half. It was like oh, so the top like of my head it. empty and then bottom of my oh kneecap. Oh, my God. Yeah. So then you're out for the rest of that year. Mm-hmm. So that's 2009 to 2010. And I could have possibly came back, but then I refractured it. Right. And then so that when you were carried off the stretcher, you fractured mm-hmm. – you broke your – snapped mm-hmm. your patella. Less than a year later – in November 2010, then you have 
a microfracture surgery on your left knee, right? Yes. So that marks your third NBA season cut short due to a knee injury. Mm-hmm. And then another one. And then, then we go to fast forward to the next season. Mm-hmm. You get another. You get two more surgeries. Yep. And then that's February 2012, which is now your fifth season in the NBA. Mm-hmm. You have arthroscopic surgery on your right knee, which is now your fourth surgery. 17 days later, you have a similar situation, which would happen with your what, what was supposed to be arthroscopy, but then mm-hmm. they go in, we've got to do the whole serious microfracture surgery again. Yep. 17 days after your other surgery. Yep. And then the next month after that fifth surgery, and then you get cut. And now I'm back in Indiana by myself, feel like I've let, I don't know, everybody down, my family, myself, just expectations, um, people in the basketball community. Like, I, I really got in a depressed state at that point after being cut. Just, you know, just the number one draft pick, I felt like a failure. Um, and I had no idea what to do next, you know. I kind of cut a lot of people off, changed my number, and I remember, like, I think I I didn't leave the house but to go to the grocery store for, like, two weeks. Again, because it's hard for you to hide, too. Yeah. People can spot you from a mile yep. away. And I definitely felt like people was making fun of me everywhere I went. Like, I'm going everywhere. I Grocery store, hood on. Every time I left the house, I'm driving with a hood on. I just didn't want nobody to see me. I bought a house in the woods so I can just get away. In Indiana? Yeah. That's a, have you, have you been able to talk with anyone about those injuries? Because I, I know that in particular, mental health and psychology, like anybody that talks to me, they know that Prim is passionate about mental health and, and psychology. And I, I have been in therapy. I got therapy. I started it around 30, 31. I continue to do it. I think I'm just a firm believer that if we have teachers in school and coaches in sports, like why not have a life coach, right? Just Mm -hmm. to check in and do whatever. And the one thing that I've learned, because a lot of people, and I think athletes do this, and particularly male athletes, they will diminish things that they experience because it's like, well, I don't want to get help because somebody else had it much harder than me, Mm -hmm. you know? But I've learned that pain is pain. doesn't matter where it comes from. And trauma is trauma. And different things can be traumatic for one person and, and not for another. But have you talked to anyone or have you been able to process the fact that your injuries were in some ways traumatic? Um, I've been through some therapy sessions where, you know, that's that was kind of a, a part and said. But uh, recently, no. Um, you know, I, I haven't continued a therapy session or some that's actually went through them like, you know, you still got stuff you need to deal with from these actual injuries. Yeah. Um, I have not. Because I think, and this is just why these interviews are so important, because it's it's offering people the human humanistic side of being an athlete. And the most difficult thing that an athlete will ever endure while they're playing is injury, mm-hmm. especially when it happens so severe and so quick. Because we rely on our physical bodies and our physicality and our our talent that leads us to success. And when our vessel shuts down, when our car shuts down, we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how smart you are. 
how, how you could be Albert Einstein. Like that's not going to get you anywhere. You, you know, you can dunk a ball like nobody else, but if you're hurt, then your whole world falls apart. That's um, kind of what you said when we first started, which I agree with, you know, the sport um, that a lot of athletes come, it becomes them because you got to think. So now I'm, I'm playing basketball. Um, my finances are good. So now I'm taking care of my family. I'm taking care of some friends. You know, I have houses I got to provide for. I have business things that I'm involved in. Um, and all this came from basketball, mm -hmm. you know? And so when that's taken away and when that's, check stops coming it's like okay every aspect of my life was affected by me getting this check from playing basketball but when that's taken away like whoa all these bridges are breaking down now hold on how am i going to provide for this how am i going to do this you know these people are only really hanging out with me because i was this celebrity from basketball yep. you know it's a it's a issue that a lot of athletes struggle with and i mm -hmm. didn't realize how big it was until literally like every every interview there's an athlete that says well, when I retired, a lot of people stopped calling me. Yeah. When I when I left the game or when I got injured, you know, people people I've people got mad at me. Or when I first got into professional, you know, the NFL, NBA, MLB, whatever it is, people you have people coming out of the word work, and all of a sudden, everybody's your best friend because yeah. they want something from you. Yeah. So it's it's sport ends up being your livelihood in so many ways, your family, your community, your something to hold on, something to do. Maybe when you're, when your parents were going through a divorce or you moved into a big city or, you know, and I'm sure you've thought about it. Um, but it's something that I can relate to. Uh, but when you look back at your injury history and how it, I mean, it's not like you sprained a couple of ankles. I mean, your stuff was super serious. Mm -hmm. I know there's been a couple moments that you can pinpoint where, well, I'm not sure if that led to that, but it's something that you circle. But can can you pinpoint anything? Have you thought about why you you in, um, got injured the way you did? Well, when I go back to that first one, um, the one thing we did, I've always had a leg length differential. So I've actually had my other wrist, my left wrist surgery and like the – seventh grade um and then in the sixth grade i had a hip fracture when i was growing so fast so basically my leg was literally falling out my hip and they caught it at the last moment i got two pins in my hip so that's another surgery and two yes. surgeries in sixth grade uh yeah sixth grade and seventh grade holy cow so you've had seven surgeries <clears throat> yeah wow and that started so so those two mm -hmm. started in sixth grade yeah so leg lift differential um, in my right hip from that hip surgery. So I always had a little limp uh, mm -hmm. just growing up. So my body just kind of got used to it. Um, even when I was here at Ohio State, I had orthotics, but, you know, it made sure I still had my little limp because that's just how my body was set up. Um, and when I got to Portland, the first thing we did was fix that with orthotics. So there's shoes that I still have that like the back of the shoe would be like this, but then my right one would be like this because the orthotic out. was so big. And so that's what happened against the Lakers when I rolled my ankle. My orthotic mm -hmm. was so big, I literally rolled out of my shoe. 
I've had um, orthotics because basically, yeah, your orthotics are so thick. It's almost like wearing a heel. Yeah. And your foot is – you don't get the protection from the sides yes. to prevent you from rolling over. Yeah. So – Yeah. So if you think hmm. about it, my body was so used to uh, that little limp that when I fixed it right away, now it was a hitch. And so now all this pressure was put on uh, the other leg. Mm-hmm. And then having that surgery, I compensated. So now between surgery and just how my body was just healing from that one, and now my body is so used to compensating. I'm putting all that pressure on this other knee where I'm doing stuff and my kneecap breaks in half. And then just the complications from um, the wire in my kneecap, to just how my knee was. That's where the other microfractures came from after that. It is, the, the body is an ecosystem and it will always change and shift to accommodate deficiencies is what I've learned. Uh, and I was talking to one of my good friends. He's a renowned physical therapist and he works, he, he works with the, Canadian national basketball team, ton of professional athletes. And I was talking to him about your injury history because I, I wanted to come in and I, w- I was thinking about it. I said, because I've thought about my own history. I had two, stre- two stress fractures in my back by the time I was 17. Fortunately, I was able to hide it when I was being recruited by colleges, mm-hmm. got into Duke, had three surgeries, right shoulder, August, next month, right knee the September 11th, and then the next October 18th, the left knee. So I had three consecutive surgeries in a row. And that is the reason I I was telling you before the interview that I found out 10 years later about how unhappy I was about how my career ended. So I ended up making a comeback, which started in 2015. Tennis is is easy. Like you can actually play professional. Well, no, I meant like you can play professional tennis without – like in the NBA or NFL, you can't just go out and play and get picked up by a team again. You know what I mean? There's there's a lot more uh, things that you have to go through, hoops that you have to go through. But um, but I when I did my comeback, I was like, I looked at my history of injuries, and there's so much more information about nutrition and diet and strength and conditioning. I said, I'm going to do it differently this time around, and so I I trained smarter. I trained less, but smarter, right? Uh, back when, when you and I were competing and playing, back long time ago, it was all about volume. Now yeah. it's about quality over quantity, yes. right? There's more about strength and conditioning and prehab and rehab and all that stuff. I think the like Pilates and yoga is yeah. so much more needed now because yeah. it's about you know how loose you are with all these movements and not just how yeah. powerful you are in these movements. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So my comeback ended up with another surgery. I ended up tearing my labrum and my rotator cuff, and I ended up getting surgery. But my point is, is that for me, I think that there's two things. I think that my engine does not fit my frame, so I think my engine is actually too strong. It's almost like a like Ferrari engine, but stuck in a pinto shell. <laughs> so then there's that part. I also don't think I'm the best technical athlete. I'm a really good athlete, but I don't think I'm the, I don't have the best technique with tennis, which led to a lot of my injuries. And then here's a third component is that 
not, I'm not blaming anybody for my injuries, but the information wasn't there at the time. And the supporting staff around you can make wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. And I found that out when I was, I think it was 17 years old. I had those two stress fractures. I went to the best sports doctor, ortho, in Tampa, Florida at the time, worked with all the Bucks, all those professional athletes. I go to him twice. And he's like, I'll send you to PT. So I sit there for like two months going through PT and I can hardly get up off of a chair. Mm-hmm. And my mom's like, we got to go back to the doctor. She, I don't remember this, but she told me this. And she's, she said, you start crying. And it's like, I'm not going back to that doctor. Mm-hmm. We found another doctor, did a simple x-ray, just a simple x-ray. And he's like, your back is broken. You have two stress, fra- two stress fractures. One is cold, meaning it was, it was active, but then healed. And the other one is still hot. And it's because that one doctor who was supposedly the best in town didn't do x-rays. And I share that story because even the best can make mistakes. And we put, as athletes, we put our health and our livelihoods and we we trust these people to take care of us. Mm -hmm. But even the best of them make mistakes and make wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. And do you ever think about your journey mm-hmm. and about like things that you would do differently and things that you look at how things were handled and you say that wasn't right well that's kind of why you know i'm here and while like nowadays I, I try to do a lot of speaking to young athletes and just the people um because i want to make this point that um especially when you're an athlete but as any person you need to be more invested in yourself you know, we we delegate a lot of things to other people, which we're not professionals or right. the best at. We're not the best doctors, so we listen to the doctor. But you need to understand everything going on with you as much as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'll start with finances. You need to understand this. You got a financial person, but you need to understand what they're doing, at least to a point where, you know, you can make decisions and you can give the final yes or no. You need to understand your body. You need to have conversations with multiple doctors. You need to understand, okay, look, this is what one person says. This is what another person says. And let me take all this information and make the best decision for me. So when something happens, you can't blame somebody else or feel like you want to blame somebody else. Um, So, you know, we need to start taking more into our lives and educate ourselves because I'm like, okay, well, maybe if I would have asked more questions or if I would have let them know, all right, if there's other things you can do, um, don't just go ahead and give me a surgery and I'm out for the full year. How about we talk about this and talk about my options, but at least you guys got to see exactly what's going on now let me get another look from somebody else and see okay is there a possibility i can play through this or do something else you know i might not have made that decision but at least i would have felt better in how everything ended up if i was more knowledgeable and i asked the right questions or you know just tried to learn as much as i can about the situation i mean yeah it's hard you don't it sounds obvious sometimes when you're talking about it, like, yeah, you got to ask more questions, but you don't know what questions to ask if you don't yeah. know about the information. Like, you don't know what you don't know. Yes. And that's a huge problem at the youth sports level because, mm-hmm. you know, you, basketball, AAU, I mean, just the overtraining, the over-specialization, kids 
playing 10 hours of sports at seven years old. And a lot injuries. of things is, you know, and I'm hearing this a lot, is it's so much specialization, um, but they're not playing. So, like, I mean, I don't oh. know about, well, in basketball, these guys are working out so much. They're doing individual workouts to the point where it's like um, a lot of these kids are really good individually, but they don't know how to play the team sport because they're not actually oh. playing five on five. They're just working out with their trainer, you know, an hour and a half, two hours here, and then another two hours in the afternoon. It's like, uh, you know you play a sport where there's other guys in competition. That's uh, crazy. You probably should do a lot more five-on-five, three-on-three, actually competing so you can get the natural feel. So a lot of guys know how to play individually, but they don't have that feel that mm-hmm. you would expect an elite player to have. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole – I've also heard – I because I'm fascinated and, and youth sports is so important to me, especially like what happened with my – my experience, but then in terms of AAU, I hear that the focus is on winning. There's more money. So now instead of making sure players are developing at all the different positions, you just stick them in one position and that's all they know and that's all they learn, which affects the college game. Mm-hmm. So they have a less less of a foundation and less of an understanding about – or less skills, I should say, um, in terms of just being an overall basketball yes. well, player. Man, because you, like, what, what is a high school kid doing with a trainer? Yeah. Like, what about your high school coach? What about your AU? These are the yeah. times you're supposed to learn the whole game. Right. You know, um, in college, you're even learning the better part of the game. You're getting better individually. You're getting more of a team game. And then when you're professional, that's when, or, I mean, college, you might have a trainer outside when you're done playing and you're getting better in that way. But, um, these kids at high school, they're and it costs so much money. Yes, you know? these it's days like, it does. It uh, does. You mean you're getting a tutor outside of school where you're supposed to learn, and now you need a trainer outside of the team where you're supposed to learn as right. well. You know, so I mean that's when we got to put a little bit more on the coaches and on the people that's actually supposed to teach them. Like if you're going to teach my son how to be a basketball player, teach them. Don't make me feel like I got to go out to somebody else to teach them individually how to be a basketball player. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's a little thought how I think about it. Yeah, that. no, I mean, because your support system, we put so much trust into the coaches and the mm-hmm. supporting staff. So if you're doing that, why are you not asking the question like, well, how are you going to help this point guard on the team? Well, how are you going to help the center? Mm-hmm. You know, we got to put more responsibility on these people that we trust in these certain situations of power and ask more questions, be more involved and being like, okay, I, I understand you're supposed to be a specialist at, at this, but, you know, I want to understand how are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, how are you going to do this? How is, you know, how am I going to fit in this equation? And, and that's when I look at everything in our lives, we need to be able to put more on ourselves and be like, okay, well, if I'm going to put myself in this situation or I'm going to work with you, how are you going to best help me, you know, figure out, you know, every, not every aspect, but know as much as you can about the situation that you put yourself in. Mm -hmm. And that way you can't blame nobody else but you when something else happens. Because I like to say, I I don't want to blame somebody for this and this because I'm older and more mature now, but deep down in my head, it's like, I didn't even know. And I trusted you. 
And we yeah. all have that little feel like, yeah, I trusted that motherfucker. It was, was kind of his right. fault, you know. But right. I won't say that now because I'm I know wrong. you can't say that now. But I, I, I had this conversation with my buddy who's a physical therapist. And he, get, he, he works at the elite level. And he can't say and be honest publicly about what's going on because by being honest, that means you end up throwing people under the yes. bus a little bit because there are bad physicians and doctors and trainers and coaches. We're not talking at the AAU or youth sports level. We're talking about at the professional, whether it's professional tennis, whether it's NFL, NBA, MLB. There are just mistakes happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing everybody. There's a lot of great professionals, trained, good physicians, coaches out there. But just like there are good people in life, there are also others that are not so trained and not making great decisions. So if you like can you is there an example or a moment with regarding your injury history that you said, if I could go back and do something differently, I would have. And I and I asked that in the context of not blaming somebody, but using your story to help educate others so we can learn from your story, other my story as well, so people don't make people. People, I don't want to say mistake. Mistakes are a strong word, but we can just learn and get better. Well, I mean, just from injuries and being a professional, um, when I look back at it, why not take that time away from the sport to gain an advantage mentally? Mm-hmm. So um, you're not playing. So. Sitting on every practice, sitting on film sessions, you know, add something to the game so I can't run around. Just dribble, add something to my handles, become better that way. Bring out a chair, sit there and just shoot shots, you know, get my jump shot better, get my release better. Like, add something to the game away from that injury Um, and just try to take a a little bit more mental advantage. I mean, I, I know that's tough now, but... You know, the guys who are the best of the best are the ones who are dedicating and putting as much into their profession that they should. The ones who are eating right, the ones who are adding extra time, and quality time, um, not just doing two workouts to do two workouts, but actually coming in and, and adding one thing to their game. You know, mm-hmm. like if you're going to come in at night, I'm working on this one hook shot. I'm not going to sit here two hours at night and just get up everything. No, I'm, right. I'm coming Practicing here for a reason. Purpose. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, and now realizing, okay, I was at this highest level, but I wanted to be at that great mm-hmm. level. You know, those are the little things that I would had or I would have done. I, I would have paid attention to the team. You know, I would have been more of a coach while I was sitting out. Why not? I'm not doing anything anyways, you know. I, mm-hmm. And you have all this free time as a professional athlete. You, you act like you don't. Or But, you know, if you're working out in the morning times, your day is usually done by 1, 2 p.m. Right. You know, so There's why no- not add that little bit of extra? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be sitting at home or doing whatever anyways. Did you not have coaches saying, hey, you should come in or, hey, you should work on this? Or did people just assume because you're so talented and tall and athletic and gifted that, hey, he, he'll he be fine? Um, I mean, I, I think it was so many injuries and it was such an up and down. I mean, I, I know 
um, that rookie year, you know, they, they really tried um, to have me along and have me on, on as many road trips as possible. Um, but then that young mindset, I fought it, you know, it was like, well, I mean, why do you want me traveling when I can get this work done every day? We got all these amenities here, then on the road when we got the little hotel fitness center, you mm. know, I mean, why would I sit here and just look at this practice when I can be doing all of my stuff right now, you know? And that, I mean, I just, I didn't have somebody in my life at that time that was being like, Greg, maybe you should listen to them. Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should uh, put more time in your craft. Um, but I didn't have that person around me and I wasn't thinking that mentally. Um, I, I wasn't that advanced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so as you go through your career and you sign a one-year deal with the Heat, and then it looks like, at least on paper, it looks like things are, hey, he, he's coming back. He's not injured. You know, with the Heat, they reach the NBA Finals, you know. Um, but with everything that's going on and then that incident happens with the ex-girlfriend – what was going what was going on that year so i've said this once before um that year was probably the funnest as just like being on that team that's that team was just crazy you know they already won two yeah. championships you know the eyes were always on them and so i came into that situation like don't mess nothing up like i told myself i couldn't eat out i could only eat out once a week because I'm in freaking Miami. Like, no. I never went over to South Beach unless I was going out. And um, I rarely went out there. I, I tried to do everything to not be that guy. Um, and so I, I remember I saw a picture of myself and they were like, what is this guy thinking? And I'm like, I was shooting the free throw in Miami Heat Church. I was like, that was the loneliest I felt had great teammates on that team, great dudes, great organization, great coaches. Um, I was living with my ex at the time, and I don't even think we talked that much. You know, I was elsewhere. I was messing with multiple women every week, and this girl's living with me. Um, like, I had all these guys. I had the Ray Allens, the Shane Battiers, Brian D. Wade, Chris Bosh, Birdman, Udonis Haslam. Yeah. Like Spolstra. all these outlets, Spolstra that I could come to that's been through it all, and I wouldn't, I barely talk in the locker room. Um, I barely opened up to anybody. I just kind of kept to myself, and it felt like it was just, it was just bubbling, you know? Because was you know, it because you were you were afraid because of everything that had happened in the past, and you yeah, just didn't want to like mess I, anything up? I didn't want to mess anything up. I just wanted to get my championship. Like, this is what I thought when I come out. I want to get my championship ring. I'm going to get it fit for my middle finger. If anybody got anything to say to me, I'm flipping them off with my championship ring. Mm -hmm. um, and because you had been through injuries, so you were trying to stay healthy, because mm -hmm. you had learned what happened in Portland of people spying on you, you were trying to be good, mm -hmm. and you were trying to just – but I didn't then, want to mess up what they had going. They already right. won two championships. Don't mess that up. Mm -hmm. Just ride the wave. I, I didn't um, give it my all um, on the court as well because I didn't want to do too much and re-injure myself. So to try to go get the extra work, I'm like, 
nah, dude, that would be too much. They told you only this amount of playing time. You know, I, I could have thought had my, failed. Yeah, my body had right. before. It had, so. and, and doctors may have steered you in a wrong direction. So you had kind of lost a little bit of trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm just I'm diving in. So I'm able to kind of dissect yeah. why, why you ended up doing things. So now you're isolated or, or insulated in this bubble. And I, I mean, I felt it, you know, um, and then, uh, I was really a, uh, indulger. So like I wouldn't drink, you know, six days, but that seventh day I'd be drinking all, especially if it was a day off, I'd be drinking all day, you know, um, if I was going to eat bad, then I was going to eat bad. You know, I'm not a cheat meal guy. I'm a cheat day guy, you know. So um, when I would do something, it, it would be over the top. So a lot of that stuff. But then I would hide it so well. So it was like six days I'm hiding everything that when I finally do it, it's like I'm doing it big. There's a lot of athletes, uh, people in general like that. There's actually mm-hmm. a lot of successful people, I would say, like that. I, I am very much the same way, where it's kind of an all-or-nothing personality, yes. a person of extremes, mm-hmm. where, but in some ways, it ends up backfiring because if you limit yourself, so it's like, I'm not going out, I'm not going to do a cheat meal, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to focus, I don't want to hurt myself, I'm doing all this stuff, mm-hmm. and then it comes out and bubbles to the surface at the end of the week, and then that's when it's like, it's too much mentally to handle. You got to release all that energy somewhere. Yes. Got it. And for me, yeah. I, mean, I felt like that whole year, I just held so much in, um, so much anger, so much thought, um, just so many up and down situations in my head that that's where that situation with my ex just kind of, it was just an explosion of me. And then I became like, I've barely gotten fights with, men so to mm-hmm. fight somebody who i've had a relationship with at that time um it, I, I like i said i didn't recognize the person i was mm-hmm. do you remember that night what, what happens not, um i don't think i can talk about it. okay yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it, so at that point i know you say was one of the events that kind of triggered you to kind of wake yourself up and and let you know that something clearly wasn't right, that you needed to change some things. Right. And what happened? So what happened after that? Um, so just um, I had to go to rehab. Um, I had to really look at some things. Um, and what kind of what kinds of things were you were you doing at this point? Um, honestly. Working out, rehabbing, just still trying to figure out if I still wanted to play basketball anymore. Um, was trying to figure out who I was. Um, and then I ended up going to China. Um, I played a year in China. Um, it was different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> different extreme, experience in the NBA? Yes. Um, the travel. Mm. I remember one of the, the plane rides we had, you know, the three um, – Exit row seats. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, seven feet me, seven one coach, and then a, a six nine bigger center on the team. It was us three, and it was just like we were all like, "Come on, man, <laughs> you couldn't spread this out." Um, but I mean, the food, okay. the culture, um, being that far away, um, meeting Chinese people. Oh gosh, that was. 
when they would uh, ask for the server was Fuyan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was the biggest eye opener. I'm like, she's coming. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> that was the number one. I was like, you guys are impatient. What's going on? She's coming. <laughs> um, no, just uh, that experience was was definitely different. But then to come back and still have to deal with being on probation, um, you know, uh, I didn't want to get in trouble. You know, I, I didn't want to end up going to jail. For, I mean, I spent one day in that thing. I would never want to go back. Um, and it wasn't even the full 24 hours. So um, that's one thing that changed in me. You know, I, I was in there and I was like, I never want to do this again. Um, but also, uh, you know, my uh, girlfriend at the time, being pregnant, um, now knowing that, you know, I'm going to have a baby on the way. I really need to figure out who I am and the person I'm going to be and lay the groundwork. Well, you know, the groundwork's already laid, but who, like, what path am I going to go down to set up for when this baby girl comes? Mm-hmm. You know, um, what life do I want to have or build towards when she's here? Um, and that was probably the biggest change for me is, is my baby girl is realizing, you know, I've done some things in my life. You can't hide it. Yeah. Just own it. Um, and be ready for, you know, she's going to find a lot of stuff out about you. But the person you are now, you can show her that. Mm. You know, hearsay, you know, she's going to hear some things. She's going to ask some questions. But, you know, by being the example of the person that I want her to see, that's the biggest thing that made me change and made me the person that I am now and how I think and maneuver through life. I, I think that that's, that's awesome. And it's fun. You light up about Ohio State and you certainly light up about your daughter. I and I can tell that that is your, that brings you purpose. In that life. is my, she is my why now, you know? Oh. So, um, before, you know, I, I would just make decisions to, kind of hide but now my decisions are made when I know that somehow she's going to find out and knowing that I got to create this life for her I'm not doing anything bad or negative that's going to affect my family life Um, and I want to be the person that she can always smile at and call Greg, Gregory Odin or dad (laughs) (laughs) so when you were dealing with your alcoholism and dependency with all that stuff for anybody who is out there and going through their own struggles, how are you able to get out of it? Or do you still struggle with that? Do you, I mean, where are you? And because Uh I want to lay the roadmap for people who are, who need help. Yeah. I mean, for mine, for one was rehab, um, you know, just started drinking in high school, um, I wasn't drinking every day in high school or college, um, but I was still drinking. Um, and really, uh, when I went to rehab and then for six months I was clean, like it kind of made me feel like, okay, you can, you can actually mm-hmm. stop. Um, and what year was that? Was that, when did, was it right after the It was incident? right after the incident. Okay. Um, well, actually I thought it was right when I got back from China. Mm, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I'm not going to say I am never had a drink again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned some stuff about me. I learned I really don't like hard liquor. Like, I, my next day hangovers from, you know, dark or light liquor is terrible. So now when I drink, I only drink wine. Mm. You know, I might have a beer every now and then, but I don't like it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've learned things about myself that kind of brought me to, okay, well, now you can kind of handle things differently. You know, now, you know, I'm not doing excess. I'm not a college drinker. I'm not just drinking whatever you put in front of me or, you know, taking 10,000 shots. No. What do you think that's allowed you to to put the brakes on? What do you think that allowed me to put the brakes yeah, on? Yeah, like what helped you? Is it is it mindfulness? Is it a sense of relief? Is it coming to grips with whatever happened in basketball? Like what allowed you to heal, right? Because everybody oh. has different coping mechanisms. And for me, for, for me it was, you know, it was. I used food as a way to control or to numb. I talked about, you know, my eating disorder. You know, it was more restricting of food that I, it allowed me to numb anything that I was feeling. For you, it was alcohol. But what gave you? You know, what I mean, what gave you? You're like, it's okay. I don't have to use those things. Like, I feel at peace with myself. Well, you just sense. said it. I'm not trying to numb anything. You know. Um, yeah, I still have injuries that I'm dealing with, but I'm not trying to numb my body anymore. I'm not trying to numb my thoughts. Like, if I was to go out and have a few glasses of wine with some friends, I'm just there to have a good time with my friends. I'm not sitting there and try to hide something where I'm not drinking just to finally be like, well, I'm not going to not think about this or not talk or, or speak about what's on my mind. I'm not trying to numb, you know, these negative thoughts going through my head right now. I'm just trying to be happy trying to enjoy life so when I look at it that like I'm not playing uh, 40 minutes a game or trying to play 40 minutes a game and killing my body that to the point where I'm just drinking tonight where I ain't got to think about my back hurting all night you know (laughs) like I'm not going through life in that aspect anymore but for me um, it goes back to I really think that at that time a lot of times I was really trying to numb I was trying to numb my thoughts I was trying to numb my body from hurting. Um, I was trying to numb the outside noise that I would hear, either from social media or from the expectations I had. You know, um, I'm trying to satisfy what this fan said to me or what I thought the fans feel of me. I wasn't trying to numb all those voices. Um, and now I'm just trying to live life and be happy for me. And I think at that point, that's when I kind of looked at myself and be like, Dude, I don't have to do anything for anybody else. I'm yeah. not trying to kill all that. I'm just trying to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what kind of got me into a better mindset. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not going to say that therapists and going to AA meetings and uh, being more open and honest with the people in my life that I trust, that I can have these conversations with, um, those help me as well mm. and still continue to help me. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like your it was a shift in perspective because it feels like for so much of your life, you had been put in a position where you're doing things for other people. And remember when I first started um, and I talked about uh, draft day when yeah. I was, was listening to them people and I felt like I was just doing it 
because that's what they told me to do. And that's yeah. what, that's the analogy I like to go back to. It was like, I wish that day, you know, I, I felt like I set the tone uh, instead of, you know, celebrating and enjoying that moment with my whole entire family. I was just trying to do what somebody asked of me and I didn't enjoy that moment. I think that's going up so high. Mm-hmm. And then that was the turn literally before I even walked upstairs to shake David Stern's hand. I was already doing that. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, you, especially because of your personality, because you, you are so warm and gentle and you ended up doing things for other people because you don't want to let them down. And now it's like a shift in perspective where you're like, it's okay to be a little selfish. I'm going to do me. I'm going to focus on me. And what, and also like, as you were moving through your career, as we kind of put a bow on everything because of your status, I feel like a lot of people kind of put slapped labels on you. Like he's a tall guy. He's the athletic guy. He's the next Bill, next Bill Russell. He's the decade player of the year and then bust, biggest bust or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, when I came into the, this interview, I said, you know, Greg deserves to write his own story rather than let everybody write his story. And there's so many, the articles that are out there, are your words, but they've been created by somebody else. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the fun thing about video is like you yeah. can, we can hear it from Greg himself. Yeah. So if I were to give you the opportunity, we know what happened in the past, but now it's about the present and the future. Mm-hmm. What would you like for people to know about your story, the way you see it as today and who Greg Odin is? Um, I mean, I, I think we spoke on it. Uh, my story, it was a lot of highs really quick. And then for me, um, I felt like, well, in my path, there were lows. Um, dealing with uh, just a little bit of addiction, um, isolation, depression, um, and honestly, not knowing who I was. Um, but now I kind of look at it because of my daughter. You know, I, I have to be me. I have to enjoy life. I have to be happy. Um and I have to do these things so my daughter can see what that type of life looks like. Excuse me. <coughs> God, where'd that come from? <coughs> it's because I've been talking to you too much. <laughs> um, but no, like I, I enjoy, you know, just the times I get with her um, and then going through life, making better decisions, being able to look back on my life and be like, I will usually handle things like this. I've had these experiences. Now let's be better. You know, let's, Let's do the hard thing. Let's make the hard choice. You know, learn about these things. Take time to do stuff. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's do you need some coffee <laughs> or something to drink? It's I, just like a little tickle. No, I totally understand. We're about, I basically just dried up your throat is basically uh, what I did. No, you told me we weren't going to be here to 1.30. I looked up and I was like, does that say? I know. I looked at the time. I was like, oh my God. I got to <laughs> um, <laughs> No. There's like 32 minutes left on the card. So. No, we're, we're okay. almost done. No, I, I just I just really want to be happy and be a better person, better example for my daughter. Um, but I also want to be a, a person of happiness, of positivity, after all my ups and downs that I'm looking at life in a positive light. Um, any situation um, with a little bit of education, a little thought process, and doing what's simply best for you um 
just bring a little smile to somebody's face, a little positivity and kindness that I feel like this world is needing. Um, and that's the type of person I want to be. That's the type of person I'm going to be. Um, I'm going to help out this world as much as I can. And I'm just going to enjoy life from that aspect. I mean, if my story can help somebody, inspire somebody to be better or make a better decision, that's what I'm here for. I enjoy, you know, using my life experiences to um, do that. So motivational speaking, anybody wants to, I can help. Shout um, out, book, <laughs> Greg. Oh, yeah, that book deal, whenever. You know, <laughs> uh, but no, um, doing what I can. Like, I grew up in Boys and Girls Club, trying to do stuff to help in that, help kids who, you know, just enjoy the game of basketball, which is one of my passions, you know. I know I've had some downs and ups from basketball, but I still love it. I'm the guy to watch Sports Center and Game Time every day. Um, but also, I'm so happy to be a dad to that beautiful mm. little girl. She is so cute. She's going to be so tall. Yes. She's taller than me when she's, in two years when she's five. She's almost there. <laughs> uh, Greg, I want to just thank you so much for coming on and sitting here with me for a really long time and yes. sharing your story and everything. But I, I really do think that it was it is one that needs to be heard, especially at this point in your life, because I can tell that you are you are really entering a new chapter of your life. And that's not to say that there might not be some, there will be ups and there will continue to be downs as everybody's life is. But I really wish you the best. It's, I'm, I'm excited to see what's ahead. Well, thank you for having me. Um, Bringing it for a hug. I feel like that's uh, what it is. <laughs> thank you so thank much. You. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed part two with Greg Odin. If you haven't gotten a chance to hear the first part of our interview, be sure to check that out. And as always, I'm open to comments and thoughts. You can hit me up at prim underscore Seripipat on Twitter and Instagram. The next chapter with Prim Seripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 